Hello, I'm Charles Wright, and welcome to the Complete in Christ podcast, where we endeavor to fit the pieces of our lives together according to the Word of God. We've been talking about heaven, earth, and the temple, specifically how these three things are connected biblically. Last episode, we talked about how in creation, the Garden of Eden serves as a temple, a place where the God of all creation, Yahweh, and his creation, humankind, can meet, an overlapping of realms, so to speak, where God's presence can be fully experienced. And we pointed out that Adam and Eve, being acceptable images of God in the garden, have both temple and kingdom implications. The temple implications being that instead of images carved out of stone and out of wood, God has instead placed humans as his image bearers within his garden temple. The kingdom implications that fall from this are that God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth taking and claiming territory in the name of the God whose image they bear. Nevertheless, Genesis tells us that beginning with Adam and Eve, mankind has resisted this relationship, rebelling against God, causing a fracture in the connection between God, his presence, and mankind. In today's episode, we're going to explore the early stages of this split and God's response. So let's get to it. Now, in Genesis chapter three, we are introduced to the fall of man uh, and that the root of that or at the center of that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know the story of that. We're very familiar with it. But just at a high level, uh, Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent to eat from the not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they ultimately give in. Right. Uh, They take from it and they eat despite the fact that God has told them not to. And because of that they now have to suffer the consequences of their disobedience. They are kicked out of the garden. There are all kinds of things that fall from um, labor and how work will be for the man to how childbirth will be for the woman and broken relationships all over the place. And an initial reading of Genesis 3 really does, it should bring to mind, or at least begs the question, and I believe this is what the writer of the Genesis is trying to get us to is what's wrong with knowing the difference between good and evil? I mean, that doesn't sound like such a bad thing, right? It doesn't definitely doesn't sound like something that anybody would be charged with as, as a bad thing to want to know the difference between good and evil. And at a surface level, just that in and of itself I think the answer is, is, well, there's nothing wrong with wanting to know the difference between good and evil. But at the core of the fall, that the core of Adam and Eve taking from the fruit and eating of that fruit is not kind of this innocent desire to know the difference between good and evil. But remember, part of the serpent's deception is not oh, hey, you will know the difference between good and evil. But at the core of his deception is you will be like God. You will be like God. And so what we see, right, is that the the desire to want to know the difference between good and evil is not the issue. The issue is control. 
It's about who will be in control. And up until now, God has been the final authority over everything. Just think about Genesis 1 and 2. Nothing comes into existence without God willing it. Nothing happens without God decreeing it. Nothing occurs in creation without God blessing it and making it so and saying that it is so. What he declares in the garden as good has been beneficial for man up until this point. Everything that he's put in place. But here, Adam and Eve are now faced with a decision. Because see, God alone has the wisdom. God alone has the authority to define what is good and what is evil. On the other hand, man, as the image bearers, they're given authority to rule on the earth. But that authority exists underneath God's authority. But what we see is that man wanted to be in control. They did not want to come to the source of the wisdom and the authority. They could have known the difference between good and evil, so to speak, had they just followed what God said and come to him. But instead, they want to be the ones who are able to determine, who are able to declare what is good, who are able to define what is good and what is evil. Even though up until now, God has held that position solely by himself in his authority and in creation. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil presented Adam and Eve with a choice. Very simply, are we going to trust God or are we going to trust ourselves? See, those who God had placed in his garden temple as his image bearers, they no longer wanted to represent him. And you might say, wait a minute, Charles, that's a pretty far leap to go from them wanting to know the difference between knowledge of good and evil to not wanting to represent God. But again, I remind you of what the serpent's deception entailed and what was at the core of it. At the core of it was you can be like him. Not you can represent him, but you can be like God so that you no longer are subordinate to him. But now you would be on an equal plane. You will have been elevated to the level of God if you reach out and take for yourself this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as opposed to looking to him, to God, to provide you with that knowledge, to teach you, to lead you, to guide you through his precepts, through his wisdom, through his commands and his guidelines. Instead, Adam and Eve wanted to make that choice on their own. And as such, this is an important point to, to, to make here. Because of that, God's domain and man's domain could no longer coexist. Think about that. Think about that. How, how do we get there? How do we get there? We get there because in God's domain, God, Yahweh, is God. There is none like him. There, are, there, there is none um, beside him. He is God. The triune God, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, is God in God's domain. And for God's domain to coexist with man's domain, man has to understand that. Man has to understand, well, God is the God of his domain. And wherever God is, he is God. There is none like him, none beside him. But the moment that man says, hey, I actually want to be God. Well, those things by nature, they necessitate 
um, that they can't occupy the same space, right? It's like matter and antimatter. The, the moment that man says, I want to be God, there's instant conflict, instant tension, instant disagreement, instant struggle. And so now God's domain and man's domain can no longer exist because God is not going to relinquish his godness, so to speak. He's not going to uh, relinquish his control. He created everything. He is the God over everything. He's not all of a sudden just going to say, well, okay, you that I've created, you now can have authority and rule and control everything. But man continues to reach after the fruit of the knowledge of, of from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Reaching out to do and to be like God. And so when you have a God who exists in a realm and in a domain, and you have man that exists in a realm and domain, and they both want to be God, one is God and one wants to be God, then those, those realms, those domains can no longer coexist. And what we see is that kind of plays out in the narrative because what happens, as we stated before, once Adam and Eve eat from the tree, there's all kinds of things fall from that. All kinds of dominoes fall from that. Namely, that they are banished from the Garden of Eden. They no longer can be in this special place. Remember, we said that the, the garden is kind of a garden temple where Adam and Eve are God's images within this temple, but they don't want to represent him anymore. They actually want to be him. And so as such, because they want to be him, they don't want to represent him. They don't want to look to him for guidance and for wisdom and for understanding. They instead now have to be banished from the garden. And this sense of of kind of pushing back against God's order, pushing back against what God has decreed, pushing back against uh, how God has ordained and, and declared things to be, just plays itself out over the first couple of chapters of Genesis. So in Genesis 3, we have the fall. In Genesis 4, think about it. You have Cain and Abel, and you have Cain killing Abel because he's jealous of Abel's sacrifice being accepted by God while his uh, was not. And then Genesis 5 through 10, we know that uh, section to be kind of Noah and the flood. But the other thing that's happening in there is kind of the context that leads up to there needing to be a flood. It's in that section from Genesis 5 to 10 where we see that there's just bloodshed all over, that there is all sorts of evil happening uh, uh, within the the community of of humankind, so to speak where uh, God looks out and he sees that the hearts of men is continuously focused on doing evil and doing evil all the time. And he, he sends a flood to kind of reset, right? To, to address that, to banish evil off of the face of the earth and to kind of start over with Noah. But what do we see? Even with the flood and the, and the reset and the starting over with Noah, Genesis 11 introduces us still to mankind now trying to build a tower. And the Tower of Babel has always been an interesting story to me, and I don't know if you can agree with this or if this resonates with you. I've always kind of scratched my head a little bit um, in the past, kind of thinking, why was this such a bad thing? 
I don't know if I understand it. This sometimes fits into that mode of, man, you know, the, the Old Testament God was angry and, and just had little tolerance for the ways that man was acting. But that's, that's kind of the, the, the trouble that we have sometimes, I think, is that we think of the Tower of Babel as just an individual story. As, and we think about it in silos instead of thinking about it as part of a large narrative that's doing what? That's describing this great split that's occurring between God and his creation, namely mankind. God, not just his creation as, as far as trees and, and, and the earth and animals, but his image bearers creation, those that he had deemed to represent him. And the Tower of Babel is an interesting, interesting case because what we see, and if you turn actually to Genesis 11, I think chapter four, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 11, verse four, it says that then they said, and these are those that are building the tower, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And so what we see is that the, the sin, so to speak, of the Tower of Babel is this notion that still has its roots in the Garden of Eden. It is still this idea that we can be like God. We can elevate ourselves. We can ascend into the realm of God, into his domain. And like it says here, and make a name for ourselves instead of, right? Because you think about it, that, that implies a contrast. Let us make a name for ourselves instead of what? Instead of being the image bearer and the representatives of Yahweh, instead of being the ones who bear God's name and are then tasked with making his name great, why not instead let us make a name for ourselves? And so what do we see? What do we see? We, we see that from the beginning, God's intention has been to dwell with his creation. His intention was to be in the same place, to exit, to inhabit the same place for man to be able to be in his presence and for him to be in man's presence. He wanted to dwell with his creation. He wanted to allow his domain to overlap with the domain of his creation. And he gave the crown of his creation, those that actually bore his image, he gave to them unfettered and unrestricted access to him. Anytime they wanted to, they could come in the garden. They had access to him. But what do we see? We see that the crown of his creation, his image bearers, didn't want to live under his rule. It wasn't enough for them to bear his image, to bear his name. It wasn't enough for them to rule underneath his authority, but they wanted to have the authority. And I say they, but look, this this is what has been passed down from Adam all the way to us now. We want to be in control. We want to do what we want to do. We want to be the ones who determine where we go and when we go and how we go and what we do and all those things. We want to be in control. And as a result, it drives the two domains apart. Two people cannot be in control. Either God will be in control or man will be in control, right? But ultimately, ultimately, we know this. 
Because God, Yahweh, is the God of all creation, we know that his will will be done. So God sets out unfolding his plan for reconciling the two domains. And it's important for me just to interject this. I don't want to make this sound like God is point counterpointing, you know, changing up and, and responding to what man is doing. We know scripture tells us that uh, God's plan of redemption and rescue had been set before the foundations of the world. The unfolding of it, right? Kind of the revelation of it to us seems like it's progressing. It seems like there's a point counterpoint because we're watching it happen, so to speak, in real time uh, as mankind. But from a, a redemptive historical perspective, what seems like cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect for us to God is exactly what he knew would happen for those that he for knew he predestined to be to be reconciled through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So even though I'm talking about this almost in, in, in an unfolding kind of a manner, I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm implying that God is having to change up and change his plans and those kinds of things. What God is really doing is he's, he's showing us our hearts. He's letting us see this is what happens when you're left to yourselves. This is the, the seed of sin and rebellion that's in you that my son died to, to basically redeem you from. Now, back to kind of the lesson at hand. In Genesis 11, right after the uh, uh, scattering of the folks who were trying to build the Tower of Babel, we then are introduced to Abram, who is a descendant of Shem from Noah. Verse 31 in, in chapter 11 of Genesis says, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the introduction of Abram, who obviously becomes Abraham in the narrative, signifies a shift in the focus of the biblical narrative. And this is interesting. I think it's an interesting thing to kind of pick up on because what we've been reading about in kind of from Genesis 1 all the way up till Genesis 11, midway there, is really has been a wide lens focus on the rebellion of mankind in general uh, and how they've rebelled against God's rule. But with the introduction of Abraham, now all of a sudden we zoom in on one man and his family. And the introduction of Abraham in Genesis 11 really becomes our first glimpse into God's rescue mission, his, his plan to reunite the two domains that have been ripped apart because of man's rebellion to God's rule. And it's interesting to, to also compare and contrast some things. So think about Genesis 1.28, where it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now think about Genesis 11 and 4, where we have the Tower of Babel, them saying, hey, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. So you have God in the very beginning declaring that those that bear his image, he would be the one who would bless them for them to then be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. 
Then in Genesis 11, we have those same image bearers saying, we can do this for ourselves. We can make a name for ourselves. We can make ourselves great. We don't need to be an image bearer. We can be gods ourselves. But then in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, look at what the Lord does. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is interesting. This is interesting to to key in on and to pick up on because God's promise to Abraham um, would overflow to the entire world. If you keep in mind Genesis 1 and 28, God's promise and his blessing to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the whole earth. Now we see God making a promise to Abraham to be fruitful, to multiply, and that his blessing that comes, that the blessing from God that comes onto Abraham will overflow to the entire world. Abraham and his family become now the new carriers of the original blessing and the original responsibility given to Adam and Eve in the garden. And that responsibility really is not just to be a special people, just to be God's favorites, so to speak, but it really is rooted in the mission of reconnecting every nation back to God. Think about that. Sometimes I know when you hear about, you know, the chosen people or a chosen nation, it, it sounds like God is, is playing favorites or he's showing favoritism. But, but that's us kind of looking at what God is doing. But from God's perspective, it has always been about getting back to the beginning and reconnecting every nation, every tribe, every tongue back to him. But why did he choose Abraham and his family? I think it shows that reuniting God's domain and man's domain has more to do with God than it does with man. Right? There's nothing special about Abraham. There's nothing special, so to speak, about Abraham's family. Man isn't good enough to deserve this reconciliation, this bringing back together of the two domains and actually man is powerless to actually make it happen on his own. And left to ourselves, what do we do? We're, we're trying to build towers so that we can make it to heaven and then call ourselves God. Not so that we can get back to God, but so that we can just pick up where we left off in the garden and make ourselves God, so to speak. But humans can't go back to the garden and we can't build up to the heavens. The only hope for experiencing the, the overlap of domains again, for getting back to the Garden of Eden, to being back in paradise, in perfection, and all of the benefits that come from that, the only hope that man has for getting back to that place is if God does something on behalf of mankind. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Complete in Christ podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode or series, you can send them to questions at completeinchristpodcast.org. Please include your name, where you're from, and the specific episode you're referencing. 
Also, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It gives us feedback that helps us to keep improving and provide some insight for those who may be listening for the very first time. Again, my name is Charles Wright, and until next time, be blessed.